2: brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?
0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from howstuffworks.com. Hello and welcome to
2: the podcast. I'm Kristen. I'm Molly. Today, uh, Molly and I are going to do something we uh, really, I don't think we've ever done before, um, which is offer up a little warning before we get into this podcast, which is about rape kits. Um, And rape kits are, for anyone who doesn't know, rape kits are the medical exams that rape victims will get um, after they are sexually assaulted, um, which are meant to collect DNA evidence against the rapist. And while it's not going to be, you know, it's not adult content, it's not going to be excessively graphic, but it is rape is not an easy topic to discuss. So uh, we just wanted to kind of provide a little bit of a trigger warning for you guys if if this is not going to be something that's going to be easy for um, for you to listen to. But we did want to talk about it today because uh, I think it's really important for both men and women to be aware of what exactly happens and can happen, at least. Um, it doesn't have to um, happen after someone is sexually assaulted and what actually goes into rape kits and also why we need to, as a general public, be more aware of how they're processed or, in a lot of cases, not being processed.
0: And a few more notes about terminology before we get underway. Uh, this is coming from the SANE Development and Operation Guide. We're going to talk about SANE a little later, but it stands for Sexual Assault Nurse Examiner. And so we we're reading a little bit about their program, and they had a few clarifications on terminology, which are also going to be sort of the, the guidelines for us today. We probably will say she in relation to rape victims more often than he, but we are aware that there are men who are raped. Uh, the legal definitions of rape, sexual assault, and abuse vary from state to state. And so we might be using rape or sexual assault interchangeably, um, but we do know that those are different. And another distinction in terminology that this uh, guide made was that between victim and survivor. And we'll probably say victim because we're dealing with rape kits in the immediate aftermath of um, a rape. And, you know, this guide made a really good point that that journey to becoming a survivor Takes later. It's probably, it takes time. It's not going to be accomplished within the hour that you're, you know, waiting for a rape kit. So those are just a few notes on vocabulary, uh, to clear up this portion of the podcast. And now we'll get into what is actually in a rape kit. Yeah. And the reason why I, I felt like this was really important for us to talk about, um,
2: is because while, you know, we hear, I think it's pretty common knowledge that if, if you're raped, you then go to, you know, go to the hospital and you get a rape kit. But I don't know that a lot of people um, and myself included are aware of what exactly is involved in um, in a rape kit. And because it actually comes in, I mean, it is a, a packet of things that are, you know, sealed off, and there was um, actually a photo essay, which sounds strange, but um, there was a photo essay, essay on the from the Washington City Paper, just documenting, you know, kind of taking apart the the different parts of a um, of a rape kit, and I don't know, it, it really kind of it, it it brings it all home once once you realize the amount of kind of detail that uh, that goes into all of this so what is in a rape kit um, a lot of times uh, you will have you know just basic instructions for um, what to do we will have separate envelopes for different types of samples for instance you'll usually have you know a, a saliva sample that'll be taken They'll take samples also from, uh, your inner labia. Um, they will take pubic hair samples. So there are bags and sheets for collecting the evidence. Obviously, there are swabs. There's always the comb in there and that comb is for your pubic hair. Um, there are also envelopes, of course, to put the evidence in there, blood collection devices, and then documentation forms.
0: So basically what, what happens is that, you know, all these swabs and all these samples are taken to try and find any trace of DNA that the rapist left behind on the body. Basically, at this point, the woman's body is a crime scene because the evidence of the crime is on her. Right. And so it's a matter of going through and collecting it and putting it into these envelopes so that it can be used, so that it can be tested and used in court if necessary to prove the crime happened. Mm-hmm.
2: And um this is coming from the rape abuse and incest national network which um has a lot of resources on its website. Uh and they they point out that you know this is a medical for, a forensic exam that might involve a head to toe physical exam including obviously the genital area and that can include anything from you know just collecting blood, urine, hair and um body fluid samples. Photo documentation, um, which I didn't, you know, kind of didn't even occur to me before I read this collection of clothing, collection of any kind of physical evidence that might have transferred onto the victim from the rape scene, and uh, and that's why uh, people will tell you to, you know, if you're sexually assaulted, if possible, you know, don't take a shower, don't go to the bathroom if you have to, do not change your clothes, because as you said, Molly, the after a sexual assault happens, the victim's body is the crime scene. And you want to, if you're going to go and get a rape kit, because it's, again, it's a woman's choice whether or not to go get the rape kit. um, You want to preserve that evidence as much as possible.
0: Now, Kristen, you brought up the issue of choice. And I think uh, one interesting thing I learned about rape kits in this research is that you can go have the examination done and still not press charges or make a case against the abuser if you don't want to. A lot of women don't come forward because they're scared of repercussions and uh, they may not want to have the police involved. What they've done, thanks to the Violence Against Women Act, is to make it so you can still have the rape kit completed, that mm-hmm. medical examination, and you don't have to turn that evidence over to the police if you don't want to. Um, and you can also
2: remain completely anonymous. They will assign true. you a number instead of using your
0: name, and that's referred to as a Jane Doe rape kit. And obviously there's also going to be some STD testing, pregnancy tests. You're going to have an a- HIV test down the line. Um, that's all separate. So you still, you know, people should still go get themselves checked out after a rape. This is sort of what you can do in addition if you want the evidence documented. Right. Um, and then I think we should also bring up the point that um, also
2: thanks to the Violence Against Women Act, uh, states have to ensure that victims have access to rape kits free of charge or with a full reimbursement. Because there have been, you know, some uh controversies about states possibly making um rape victims pay for rape kits, but that is completely illegal.
0: Yeah, I mean it it's a it's like asking a a uh, person whose family member has been murdered to pay for the fingerprints. Mm-hmm. And, and at the same time, too, the Violence Against
2: Women Act is also built in some of that protection for victims who might not want to go to the police. They are allowed to have more time to decide whether or not to pursue a case, whether or not they want to go forward um, to uh, to the police and pursue, you know, some kind of uh, criminal conviction.
0: And depending on where, uh, the person is, there will be different time periods for when, you know, you can, you have to make that decision about whether you're going to pursue a case, the statute of limitations. So now we're going to talk a little bit about the same program, uh, sexual assault nurse examiner and how that person, uh, can assist you through the rape kit process. Because this program developed, uh, in the 1970s because there were a few issues with how rape victims were being treated when they came into emergency rooms for, uh, that collection of evidence. For one thing, if the emergency room was busy, they were out in public in a waiting room, perhaps not being seen because there were things like gunshot wounds and the other, uh, you know, injuries like that coming in. And maybe while you can't see the injury that takes place after rape, it's no less, uh, severe. So they wanted to get the victims back there faster, especially because you, like Kristen said, you can't eat, drink, urinate, change your clothes. Well, you're advised, yeah, you're advised not to. And because it is a criminal investigation, sometimes the doctors and nurses weren't properly trained in how to do that investigation. You know, the pictures we saw of the rape kit did show how it, it was very sort of intuitive what you were supposed to do next and how you would take the, the samples, but the doctors and nurses, you know, may not have had the best training on how to use, uh, that material. And, uh, they also were concerned because rape victims' emotional needs were all too often overlooked because you know, if you've got the wrong person who makes the wrong crack, it's just, you know, it's devastating. Mm-hmm. If you've got someone who is, you know, trying to ask you questions and it feels invasive, it feels like they're blaming you. Uh, that was happening. So that was um sort of what set the SANE program into motion. Yeah, and the first SANE program was established in Memphis,
2: Tennessee in 1976 and the second one that happened in uh, Minneapolis in 1977. And it wasn't until 1991 when the Journal of Emergency Nursing published the first list of SANE programs with only 20 programs listed, To me, it's baffling that in 1991, Molly, we only had 20 programs, 20 sane programs in the U.S. And five years later, that number had grown to 86, and today there are more. However, um, sane programs are in battle because it's not, uh, it's not very well funded. Um, obviously becoming a a sexual assault nurse examiner requires extra training, and, um, it's also probably one of the hardest jobs that someone could select but it's so these women are so important and they are so needed uh, because without them, you know the the issue of you know women going and, and getting rape kits would just be would be so much harder and uh, for for prosecuting um, alleged rapists.
0: So to clarify once a sexual assault nurse examiner is on the scene she is responsible, for uh, conducting that evidence-gathering process with the rape kit. Uh, she'll do the STD prevention test. She'll evaluate the risk for pregnancy. Um, and she'll also be a point person if you need referrals for additional support or care, the person who can help you figure out where you're going to sleep that night. And uh, the person who can help you decide if you do want to report it to the police. It, uh, that person, The same will help you. Kind of, uh, explore all your options about, uh, doing that and service a support person if you decide that you do want to, uh, report. Now, there are places where you have to, places and cases where you have to, where there's mandatory reporting.
2: So if you do choose to report, um, the rape kit is used as evidence in, um, in a rape trial. But here's the big thing. Here's the big problem with rape kits and which is why, one of the big reasons why Molly and I wanted to talk about it today is because there's been a lot of controversy over whether or not, um, or over what happens to that rape kit between the time, you know, a, a victim goes to the hospital and has it performed and all the evidence is collected and, um, the kit and whether or not it is ever even process because the reason why it needs to be processed is for DNA evidence. Mm-hmm. But a report from human rights watch suggests that 80% of rape kits may have never been examined. Um, and this is in the state of Illinois. Okay. But this has been a huge problem, particularly in LA. Mm -hmm. Um, and New York has kind of been heralded as the, you know, the standard for actually processing rape kits. But in so many large metropolitan areas, there is a huge backlog of rape kits that are simply never processed.
0: Right. It costs about a thousand dollars to process one rape kit because you've got uh, the people who do the work, the processing fees in the lab, and these programs are underfunded. And, I, you know, this article about the Illinois situation is dated July seventh, two 2010, so it's this month, and the larger issue is that, you know, you can use that evidence to catch rapists and to punish them, and now without that uh, extra step, some some rapists are still out there waiting to attack again.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And just to give you some numbers, in the case of Los
2: Angeles, they have more than 2,000 rape kits in the pipeline waiting testing, um, and they are struggling to complete results within a year after the request is made. And nationwide, Crime Labs saw their DNA testing backlog double from the beginning to the end of 2005 according to a report from the Census of Publicly Funded Crime Laboratories. Um, So to me, this is very disturbing because we have all of these women um, who are going in and getting rape kits after attacks, and yet... Um, all of that, you know, that very invasive process is kind of futile in a way if the DNA evidence is never even processed. There was an article in The New York Times, and not to be fear-mongering about this, but I think this anecdote um, from The New York Times is really telling uh, because there was a, a detective with the LAPD who... Collected a rape kit from a 43 year old legal secretary who was raped in her home as her son slept in the other room. And, um, the, just the way the rape happened, the detective felt like this was a serial rapist. And so in an attempt to track this person down, he wanted to get this rape kit, um, process as quickly as possible. So he drove to the department's crime lab, but was told to expect a processing delay of more than a year. Then he drives 350 miles north to the state's DNA testing lab in Sacramento. But the backlog prevented testing for four months. And during that time, the rapist, the same rapist broke into the homes of a pregnant woman and a 17 year old girl and sexually assaulted both of them. So it's like, You know, this is so important for people to be aware of the fact that because of um, shoddy federal funding and also a breakdown in the state and county level, um, these rape kits are not not being reported and
0: crimes are happening even more as a result of that. Now, you mentioned the federal funding, Kristen. Let me explain a little bit about that. The government gives cities and states grants uh, through their local law enforcement agencies to process the rape kits. Mm -hmm. Um, they don't require states to report their efforts. So that's one problem is that there's sort of a lack of accountability. But also there's a stipulation on the funds that um, the funds can't be used to hire permanent staff. So, you know, because when I was reading this, I was like, wow, you know, if people want to find jobs, it sounds like these testing centers really need people who have experience in this. But, you know, they can't bring people on full time to do this rape kit. So that's that's that is disturbing, but there are New York legislators who are attempting to uh, to fix those rules. There's legislation being put on the floor right now.
2: Right, and I also, I mean, and that's going on in the federal level. And I also point out that there is definitely a breakdown as that money trickles through the system. For instance, the New York Times also reported that um, in Los Angeles, the police department had spent less than half. Of the $4.4 million in federal money it received from 2004 to 2008, um, to, uh, you know, to just, to support these, uh, these sane and rape kit, um, programs. So, you know, th- even in cases where they are getting money, you know, they're not, um, if, whether they're just hamstrung or not, uh, it's not being, it's not being used properly.
0: So that is something that you can do if you have an interest in uh, this issue and the prevention and of rape is to work with local law enforcement, local politicians to ensure that funding for rape kits and their processing is used appropriately, um, not subject to cuts. And another thing that is subject to cuts, you mentioned this earlier, Kristen, is the same program. Uh, we talked about what a hard position it is but even people who choose to become sexual assault nurse examiners are often thwarted because the funding may get cut or because of these recent uh, Supreme Court cases that are limiting uh, SANE's abilities to testify in court. Right, because uh, obviously the
2: primary duty of a sexual assault nurse examiner is to collect that evidence um, to kind of uh, guide sexual assault and rape victims um, through that that. Process immediately following the incident, but at the same time, it's also their role to um, serve as expert testimony on anatomy and tissue uh, in rape trials. However, a recent um, Supreme Court ruling in the case of Crawford versus Washington um, has affected a saint's ability to repeat hearsay statements made to her by patients um, who might not be able to testify on their own. And a lot of these nurse examiners are very concerned about the legal ramifications of Crawford v. Washington uh, because that might eliminate um, or, uh, I guess, nullify their testimony, which could be instrumental in um, bringing uh, these
0: criminals to justice. Right. As Kristen said, if you make a statement outside of court that can be used as hearsay, uh, but statements recorded in medical records are admissible. Um, but what happens here is sort of a breakdown. If you've got a victim who's telling her story to the sane, that's going to be a mix of the medical stuff and also just the personal stuff. And they're saying that, you know, doctors are kind of exempt from this hearsay thing because people don't lie to their doctors. And there's this assumption that people will lie to a sane or that that, um, you know, a woman's story shouldn't be you know, thought of as evidence, according to the SANE. And, you know, it's kind of disturbing that um, one SANE was testifying that the injuries suffered by the woman were, you know, evidence of rape. And that was thrown out because the jury it was the j- jury's job to make that decision of whether those injuries were a sign of rape. So it's it's been very uh, interesting to see these court cases and quite frustrating, I think, because it's almost like the SANE is being punished for serving in that close confidant role. Mm-hmm. Um, they are a medical professional, but also, you know, it's, if- if you've just been attacked, you want to talk about it. And they're saying basically that that talking about it almost disqualifies a saying from further testimony. And to me, that's even more troubling because,
2: first of all, you know, it's rape is such a difficult um, crime to talk about, even from a statistics perspective, because assessing the actual incidence rate is ca- pretty much impossible because it goes so unreported. And it's also one of the least prosecuted crimes. Uh, this uh, same development and operation guide points out that only 4% of rapists go to jail either as a result of a guilty plea or guilty verdicts. Um, so just hindering that that legal process even more, by, uh, limiting what, um, what
0: Saints can and can't say in court, I think is, um, is very troubling. Right. So again, it's something you can keep your eye on on a local level. If your community has a same program, you can look for ways to support that. So again, while, uh,
2: you know, talking about rape kits is not the lightest conversation, um, that we could bring up. I do think it's incredibly important because, as women and as men, I think it's good to be armed with this kind of information because hopefully, none of our listeners out there will ever have to go through the process of getting a rape kit. But and why? But I think it's important to know what goes into it and all of the issues surrounding it because it is a very intensive process to go through, especially when it is immediately following. Um, you know, very horrifying crime committed on your body. Um, so I think it's great to, in, necessary for us to arm ourselves with this kind of information to be better supports for victims and survivors out there and I just want to give a shout out to the National Sexual Assault Hotline um, which is 1-800-656-HOPE and also the Rape and Incest National Network's website that has a lot of good resources if um know, if this is something that you want to learn more about, um, if you have been sexually assaulted, if you know, you have a friend or someone you're in a relationship with who has been sexually assaulted and you don't know what to do, there's so many resources out there, um, that you can, that you can track
0: down. So that's it. All right. Well, let's do a little listener mail before we wrap it up. Uh, we've got one from Annie in Hong Kong. And she writes that my grandmother had her feet bound when she was a child for two years. In the words of my mom, she rebelled, stopped finding it at an unknown age. My grandma then somehow walked with her husband to inner Mongolia and promptly gave birth to six children. However, if you asked her if she ever had her foot bound, she would say, oh, no, no, no. But if you asked any of her children or husband, the answer would be a firm yes. Even though she rebelled, she still favors small feet and hands on her girls. Last week when I visited her, which I do every year, she held my hands and bit every finger with her 80-something-year-old teeth. It's a sign of affection. She does it every time I visit. She said that it's good that I don't have my mom's monkey feet and long, bony, monkey-like hands. And it's not only her my family still sees having small feet and hands, preferably plump, as being blessed, as it would mean that the possessor wouldn't have had such a hard life. That is how my hands and feet become a topic of discussion whenever we have family gatherings. So we hope to hear from you as well. Email address is
2: momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can follow us on Twitter and we would be so grateful to you if you would like us on Facebook. And as always, you can check out our blog during the week. You can find it at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want
1: more works? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the
2: reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?
1: Hi, I'm Allie Wentworth. How do I grow a teenager in a pandemic? Well, that's exactly what I want to find out. In my new podcast, Go Ask Allie, I'm asking experts to help me answer that question. For example, are quarantined teenage girls more apt to Instagram nude photos? Are they somehow going to end up on the dark web? Are teenagers getting ripped off by their new virtual education? And how do we deal with their overwhelming anxiety and uncertainty? And are they losing empathy? I'll be talking to experts and friends like my friend Brooke Shields. She'll reveal how her complicated sexual upbringing has influenced how she is as a mother to teenage girls. It's a new world, and how we raise these young humans in it determine our future. So let's share some real experiences with all new episodes releasing every other Thursday. Listen to Go Ask Allie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: In this time of pandemic and revolution, do you find yourself frustrated at high levels of corruption and inequality, at our inability to get basic things done, at the persistence of systemic racism? You're not alone. I'm Baratunde Thurston, author, activist, and comedian. Our democratic experiment is at a tipping point, but which way we tip is up to us. Listen to How to Citizen with Day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.